Accessing library computer data. Out there, there are no saints. Just people. Hey everybody, welcome back to the show. Continuing our run-through of Star Trek Deep Space Nine right now with the, up to the episode called Waltz. It's the 11th episode of the sixth season, aired on January 8th, 1998, written by Ronald D. Moore, directed by René Aubergenois. In this episode, following the destruction of the starship Honshu, Sisko is severely injured and trapped alone on a deserted planet with Dukat, who is becoming increasingly unstable. We're joined by patron Isaac. Isaac, welcome back to the show. Hello, hello. How's it going? Good. You, uh, this is this is the end of an era. You're here. You're the final patron appearance. We used to, if yes. people are unfamiliar, we used to uh, allow, allow. We used to have people um, guest host uh, from Patreon if they were on like the top tier. But for a variety of reasons, that program got um, scuttled, just like the the Honshu. I think here in, the, in this I guess episode. you could say it's what you left behind. Basically, yeah, that's that's, <laughs> that's exactly right. So you're you're the end of an era. Um, welcome back. Anyway, how are you? I am good. I'm excited. I'm excited about this episode, actually. Yeah, you chose you chose to talk about uh, Waltz. We had originally decided to do Sacrifice of Angels with you, but I yeah. realized, realized I wanted to do that as a two-parter because it is kind of a two-parter, even though it doesn't really feel like a two-parter in context of where it comes in the season. But Waltz is the second uh, your second option. It seems like a pretty good one. I have a bone to pick still, though, about Sacrifice. I, I could defend that episode forever. I was listening to your guys' podcast, and like that was weirdly negative <laughs> for the majority of it, mm-hmm. um, which isn't funny, because then at the end, I think you gave that episode a five, mostly for the novelty of DS9 going full serialization, and just the... Um, in, in know, co- it's also the, my five is also for favor the bold in addition to it i think favor the bold okay. is a better episode but yeah well yeah. in walk rocks and shoals i'm i'm assuming you're kind of lumping the whole six-parter into the grand score no i'm, I'm just saying too. for the uh for the five that i gave sacrifice it counts favor okay. the bold as part of it because i i think that favor right, the bold okay. is the better part of that two-parter but uh sacrifice is kind of the the lesser half as star trek has always wanted to do the second half is never really as good as the first half Mm, I would actually disagree in that case, but I, I do know your points. Um, I just had, <laughs> I just found it funny. Like I was listening to it and then like Wes was, I mean, uh, Clay at some point was comparing it to like season eight of Game of Thrones. And I was like, oh no. <laughs> and then it kept going a little bit. And then he brought up The Last Jedi. <laughs> and that's where I was like, totally just, okay. <laughs> We're probably ready to throw his hands here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's, um. I, but no, I understand. It's, yeah. No, I can't, um. I can't disagree. I, I guess. I guess my only counterpoint to that would be: um, I don't know how often we really praise the episodes. I guess maybe it's something we should be more conscious of. Right? I think we do an okay job of. I, I think that the 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 six arc episode that starts season six is different to a modern modern audience that hasn't seen the show before. I think I think it carries a lot of like prestige within Star Trek communities, but I think if you're someone who's just watching it uh for the first time in 2019, it doesn't yeah. hold up as well. Like it's still very clunky as a sort of like serialized little arc that they're trying to get across. And I think that that was generally Clay's point. Hmm. Yeah, um it definitely is a novelty of the time. Um I guess what makes Sacrifice in particular just such a standout episode for me um, is how much it just just truly commits to the space opera aspect of Star Trek, which 
I feel Star Trek can pull off. I know a lot of people disagree with that. Um, I know some people tend to look at the JJ reboot reboots as like Star Trek Wars in a way, where you kind of turn Star Trek into an action franchise, which honestly has been kind of going on since like the TNG movies. Um, but the buildup and how that episode pays off in so many different ways, I think, and how it drives both the stories and characters forward previous to everything we've seen thus far and going forward, I think is what makes it such a standout little pocket, especially the culmination and sacrifice, such a, a powerful six episode little chunk there, even despite, you know, the, the issues of making full serialization about really knowing the full breadth and width of how you create an episode like that. And then late nineties, mm. um, so I feel like it I feel like in the context of the show, I think it still holds up because if you're a modern audience member watching DS9, you're not gonna start with that series. You're gonna start probably at the beginning, or at least where some people say, Oh man, DS9 only gets good at like season four or something, which I think is a bit stupid, but you know, whatever. Point is if you've been at DS9, if you've been watching the show continuously up to this point and have been able to accept the show, even when it's fully just episodic and with maybe some sprinkles of uh, serialization or uh, modern storytelling sprinkled in there, I think having this is such an adrenaline rush to just have something that feels, you know, ahead of its time in that in that aspect. Yep. Um, but I do know what you're saying. I mean, if you're comparing just those episodes to say, you know, Oxymandias from Breaking Bad. It's like, yeah, and there's. <laughs> well, it was, it, it's ahead of its time in the era. It's now behind the time. You know what I mean? Like the the, the, right. the difference there is that, like in context of the '90s, it's impressive. But it's it's now when you see a storyline like that, you notice the flaws more because you realize what other shows have improved upon what they were doing. And I, I think that's what me and Clay were kind of picking up on. Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, I mean my, my point as well is just the fact that I think even within the context of the rest of DS9, it's a standout thing. So yep. if I feel like if you watch the whole show and if you can just get past the initial shock of it being a 90s show, this is a very nice like change of pace and surprise. Um, you know, so I think it just it still is a highlight to always go through it whenever you do a rewatch of the entire series, or if you're a Trek fan and you know get a bit bored of the the TNG format. So let's uh, we'll take a break. We are going to talk about Waltz. This is not a yeah, this, is not a, this is not, <laughs> not a not sacrifice. A, this is not a redub of Sacrifice of Angels. Okay, um, for we'll, shame. We'll, we'll talk about Waltz. I'm going to take a break. We're going to play an audio clip, and then me and Isaac are going to come back, and we're going to break down the episode called Waltz. The cup. Yes. Everything's all right, but don't try to move too quickly. The left side of your body is covered with plasma burns. We were in the brig, and the ship went to red alert. We were attacked by a wing of Cardassian ships, ironically. I was headed to engineering. Well, you didn't get very far. A plasma conduit exploded before you got 15 meters down the corridor. That's where Lieutenant McConnell and I found you when the order came to abandon ship. Where's McConnell? Dead. A piece of shrapnel hit him in the head just as we are carrying you into the shuttle. All right, Isaac. So what I like to do in these uh, situations here is I like to ask when someone is coming on to the show uh, why they chose an episode. Because I usually ask them about uh, the episode that they chose or I usually give the option to people you were not allowed to have sacrifice unfortunately so you ended up with uh, waltz as your second choice so why did you pick waltz as your second option 
Funnily enough, mainly because from a story perspective, and I swear I'm not harping on this, it feels like the most fluid continuation from Sacrifice. Um, The last several episodes have had the backdrops of, okay, the Dominion War is now officially on. There's um, a background sense of a somber, militaristic tone within even some otherwise lighthearted episodes like the, um, what was it, the Magnificent Ferengi, I believe, was in this bundle of episodes here. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, uh, the Ferengi episodes. But anyway, um, so I love how this episode really kind of delves deep into just the aftermath. You know, like we had Dukako crazy at the end of Sacrifice. What's going on with him? What's going on with Cisco? And this episode, I feel, I, I maybe I'm wrong. I feel like Clay would particularly love this episode because this episode is a lot about consequences mm-hmm. <laughs> and characters kind of reconciling themselves in a lot of ways. Um, it's also very which, reminiscent of duets, and he likes duets quite a bit. Yes, um, yes, I, I, I was going to bring that in later, but yeah. Some, the thing about Waltz is kind of interesting, just in its placement, is that it, um, if it had come right after Sacrifice, I think it would have been too soon. I think you needed a couple of like little sort of silly episodes, filler episodes in between them, the Ferengi episode and then whatever else was, uh, we saw statistical probabilities, which is a good episode, but it wasn't really related mm-hmm. to anything that had come before it um, uh, in terms of the war anyway. But I think, I think that Waltz is good because it feels appropriately timed in the season in a weird way where you could kind of compare it to like family after best of both worlds and where that made immediate sense to happen after that. I think that Ducat being in therapy for a couple episodes actually makes yeah. the, the timing feel a little bit more realistic. And it, um, I think it just gives you a little bit more sense of the scope and the scale of what's going on. So I, I think that just on a technical level, the timing of it is pretty appropriate for where the episode falls in the season. Yeah, I agree with that. I think DS9 is a really good job in the last couple seasons of having um, episodes that kind of just give you the wind-up punch effect, where you have the gut punch of an episode, something very dramatic, something very tense, and then it kind of lets you down a bit, you know, lets you breathe, lets you take in the situation, and winds back up for another punch. And that's what this episode kind of is, is, okay, we've, we had that um, this thriller of a six-parter, let's have a little bit of a come down, a little bit of a a respite and then boom back into the main story of it um and yeah i think that works really well i'm, I'm thinking a lot about um just how much this episode makes you think about where the show goes for better and worse with um with certain characters mm-hmm. um you know and i think that having that little breath of episodes in between each of these big gut punch episodes really makes you kind of soak in the tone that the show is going for because honestly i feel the tone of the show has changed um even outside of these episodes, I feel like whenever I think about DS9, there's always a distinct um, atmosphere, for be- lack of a better term, um, specifically in the sixth and seventh season, because this is where the show just fully just knows what it is, knows what it's going for, um, still has some constraints from the executives and you know the ratings of the show mean to be uh, in line to be able to do certain things, you know, but. In regards to what the show is able to do, just fully commits to its uh, its presentation. I think it does. I, I think it's useful to compare it to duet. They they clearly titled mm-hmm. it to mirror duet. Uh, they call it a waltz, which is not really a one to one type thing. They don't they don't uh, 
they're both musical related yeah but they're, they're both dance yeah yeah the the duet is more duet makes sense because it's the two of them but they were like well there's two of them in this episode but we can't call it duet part two or something so we'll call it waltz which does which you know it's a dance but it's when I when I think of waltz, I think of three because the timing of a waltz is usually three four. So I, I, I always think that they should have a third person in this episode. But um, hmm. outside of that, well, there are three characters with Ducat. Yeah, there's the three enough. three characters in his head, which um, I guess yeah. I guess you could you could say that that's the uh, the reason to do it. But I do see it as a dance between Cisco and Ducat. I guess would be the point. But I, I think mm-hmm. that it's a um, I think it's a good episode. I before I before we get into it, I have to say that uh, I've never noticed before, except on this rewatch, how brown Deep Space Nine is. Everything is brown in this show. Like when they do the Klingon stuff, Wait, it's all very you're brown. You're in season six, <laughs> and you just now noticed that the but, station's brown. No, it's something that I've never noticed for like the overwhelming color palette is brown in this show, and it's almost like. It's almost, I think, like a mistake that they made it so dark and drab in a lot of ways. Like, people (laughs) complain about Discovery being dark. I think, you know, DS9 is not remastered or shot in high def or uh, or or it was shot, but it's not, um, the versions we watch aren't in high def. It's a pretty washed out show. And I can sort of understand why it would have been difficult for people in general to get into it. Like, this, this episode is shot almost entirely in a cave lit by firelight. And it's really mm-hmm. not very good looking. Like it's really, I think the show does this too often. It does these sort of dark scenes that it knows aren't going to show up well. And I'm surprised that they never adapted to it and made things more bright. It is jarring. I, Cause I noticed that not so much when inside those main scenes in the cave, but when it would jump cut between that and the defiant and how much better the defiant looks in terms of lighting. Yeah. Um, by comparison. Cause like, you know, you would have those scenes with the call with Ducat and Cisco. Um, and it will cut to, you know, Dax on the defiant. It's like, Whoa, it, Hey, Dax. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Looking good. I mean, it's just, yeah. it's just the fact that they, they can't, you can't capture the, subtlety of firelight on this mm-hmm. kind of resolution that they're working with so like if, if everything's lit very brightly it all looks fine but when they do this either Klingon thing or they do the station like the darkness of the station or they do an Empok Noor episode where they're in the dark it, it doesn't really um, mm-hmm. it doesn't work that well but we can get off of that let's just talk about Waltz which is a Ducat and Cisco episode um, mm-hmm. Clay is not here so I can say that you would probably be aware of this I, I was surprised about this this is the last time that Ducat and Cisco interact with with each other until the finale which is interesting um like in person in person I, yeah yeah okay so yeah. that's that's interesting uh but what did you th- what did you think about waltz okay so let me preface this so i don't consider myself a ds9 fanboy in the strictest sense of the term so like for example if i was a regular host in this show i feel like i'd probably be the more positive inclined person overall like since for example many episodes where you and clay have kind of went back and forth and kind of settled on eh, it's a week three and eh, it's a strong two something like that i'll probably be like oh it's a four <laughs> right sure. and it's like only has minor minor flaws because i just i am so endeared to this show its characters um 
I'm someone who's loved Star Trek his whole life, and seeing how DS9 just kind of, to me, in a lot of ways, transcends the Star Trek formula. That sounds so pretentious, but it it, it takes what already works so well in TNG and kind of just elevates it um, in terms of character development, in terms of mature storytelling, in terms of not having to rely on um, static formulas, which kind of were just tried and true for so long. Mm-hmm. Um, so that being said, and, you know, and me not sounding too much of a fanboy, this is in my top five favorite DS9 episodes. And funnily enough, I think actually four out of the five of my top five are all in this season. Uh, season six is fantastic, dude. Right. <laughs> I don't know if you want to segue on to that, but like, I, I think season six is by far the best season of the show. Yeah. Um, with, that, you know, I guess it depends upcoming- on your, um, yeah, it depends. It's, it's kind of like a baseball metaphor. Season six is like the power hitter who strikes out a lot where season four is the person who gets on base all the time. Um, and I, I guess it depends on what you value more out of your show. Uh, season, okay. season four, I think is more consistent Season six has bigger hits and like better, like higher highs, but it also has some tremendous lows in season six. I remember the one low, which I'm sure we're both thinking of, but I don't remember season six having a lot of duds. Like, I just remember season six being anywhere from just solid to just out, like outstanding. Yeah. Um, with just one exception. I, I assume we're referring to the upcoming Ferengi episode. Well, there's <laughs> Not that- the one we've already seen, but yeah, we also had the, uh, the other episode that was bad this season what the hell was it it was um sons and daughters uh no sons and daughters was 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 okay it wasn't great uh, I'll, I'll forget about it but i think that the what, what was surprising about season four is that it's i think we only had two twos in the entire season of season four which is just kind of surprising i didn't mean to um mm. derail you off of that but se- season six is the one that people remember i think it has like the remember the uh remarkable episodes in it that people yeah you know, are drawn to. So I, w- I wouldn't say it's a uh, obvious case of season four being better than season six. I think there's kind of a, a taste uh, associated with it. But I, I think that six is the episodes that people remember of DS9 more than they remember the episodes of season four. Um, yeah, I see that perspective. Um, with, season f- with season four, I feel like um, it's more of a slow burn season. Um, which is good in its own right, um, because a lot of that season is, is focusing on setting up things, um, drawing in like a lot of those aspects of the changeling infiltration, making you slowly kind of just feel the weight and the pressure of the Dominion looming on the horizon. Whereas this season is so much more, um, I don't want to say focus, but it really does not just meander very much when it comes to its core episodes. I know it has a lot of what you would probably call filler episodes, um, but with with its core lineup of the stories that are driven within the, the core aspects of season six, it feels like it just is a complete just gut punch after gut punch in terms of just, you know, massive shifts happening both for um, macro and more character driven stories. Resurrection which, was know, the Resurrection is the terrible episode that happened this season. It's the Brile comes back. Oh God! The mirror, ep- mirror universe. That was a thing. <laughs> that was the that was the sixth season. <laughs> I mean, I love this season, and I don't. Fr- <laughs> so I do not remember this. You're just, you're just blocking out to the uh, the bad memories of yeah. what happens in season six. Yeah. <laughs> I, um, oof, okay. So oh, I, hmm. I, I, let's. Um, I guess we'll pull this back into Waltz. The reason. Okay. The reason I'd asked. Uh, the the reason I think that it's like where you're coming from with this episode and I think that why it's so well regarded is I think it is basically 
uh, a co- not a copy, but it's it's a template that they've lifted off of duets, and I think that the show does well with this. As you were saying, like the the focus on characterization and character stories in DS Nine compared to the other treks allows it to do these kinds of episodes better than the other shows probably can um, because of a way that they're set up and the way that they tell their stories. I think that. You know, I, I think this episode is really kind of a, a standout, mostly because of Alemo's performance. I think he's fantastic in this, and it's probably his best performance. You, yeah, I was going to ask, do you think this is best overall well, performance as Ducat? I'll, I'll, I'll throw it back to you by saying, is do you think that where Ducat ends up in this episode is appropriate for him? Because the episode's kind of controversial um, in a way that yeah. I would have problems, I think, speaking about it with Clay. It, right. It's the start of Ducat version two, like the the new mm-hmm. Ducat that we're going to see. But I, th- yep. I, th- I what I see is, and I, I only want to keep it contained to this episode. So in terms of yeah, in exactly. terms of Waltz, what do you think about Ducats at this point? Is this like an appropriate story for him at this at this junction in his uh, his arc? right? Yeah, I, I have literally the exact same thoughts as you. So knowing about like you know, in case Clayless and Depression go into it, but knowing where the story goes, I think you could make the argument that it retroactively makes this episode a bit worse in terms of the Kotz character. Um, but I never looked at it that way. So judging it based purely on the merits of what this episode does, I think it, I think it fits perfectly. Um, because the thing is, this episode never fully commits to exactly what Ducat's new plan is going to be. Like, he never specifically says, um, well, not to go into it, but... Yeah, he, gonna... he, does, he doesn't do anything besides sort of broad statements of, I'm going to get vengeance. Right. Yeah. right, exactly. And we don't know the context of how or why or anything. So just so just the, the concepts behind the character chef, I think makes a lot of sense to me within the context of the episode. Cause I, I think that the, the criticism that I see, and I don't believe in this criticism, but the, the criticism is that what they did is they took Ducat, who's a sort of morally gray character and they turned him into pure evil. And apparently the writers did this because they were frustrated by the online reaction at the time. I can't, I can't imagine <laughs> yeah. what the online reaction in 1998 would have been like. It's probably three people who said something, but like, <laughs> They were concerned that people were too sympathetic to Ducat, right. which is really interesting of the time that that's how they would choose to react to him, which is to make him have this sort of go crazy and reveal his inner thoughts. I think it still works for him because what I, what I think that the episode and what they've done over the course of the season is that I don't, I disagree that Ducat is a morally gray character. I don't think that's true. I don't think that's ever been right. true of that character. I think he's always been self-serving. I think he's been um, polite and stuff like which, which I think people yeah. sometimes confuse with him having good intentions. But he's well, the show. Go ahead. Yeah the, yeah, the show draws a mask for the character. I mean, he always will have ways to shield his true self to others and find workarounds and have all of these different facades that he could put up depending on what character he's interacting with. You know, like his dynamics of Kira throughout the whole show is just him just in his own way waltzing again with that character and playing around all the atrocities he's done because the show likes to show Kira as not the bad guy, but almost as the aggressor, because obviously Kira's character is much more in line with someone who's going to be much more um, upfront and abrasive, especially around someone like Ducat, or Ducat can play off of that and just kind of just, no, no, but I was a great ruler. And, you know, and he, he can just he can just play it up. But what makes this episode to me so brilliant is that 
he doesn't have any of those shields to hide behind anymore. He doesn't have, you know, Wei Yun who can talk into his ear and hear about the gloriousness of what Cardassi can do on, you know, under the rule of the Dominion. He doesn't have Kira who he can, he can kind of just play hard to get with and toy with her emotions and all of this stuff. All he has is the one man who's just been just eating at him this entire show. Um, stranded with no things to hide behind, no legal pretense, no titles, no anything. Um, and this is also coming off of him being completely traumatized and broken after the events of Sacrifice of Angels. So I feel like this is just the perfect um, way to set up this type of um, uh, character shift and inner lookings into what he really is, which I agree with you completely. I do think Dukat has always been evil. Um but just it's the combination of the mask that he would be wearing throughout the show, coupled with just Alamo's performance. And I think that's really where the uh, confusion came in, especially back when the show first aired, because he's such a charismatic actor. Yeah. Um, like you can't help but watch, like love him and like uh, not even the kind of love to hate type of way. Like that's to me, that's more of like Kai Wynn's character. Like you just, I just feel like, ah, get off my screen <laughs> whenever yeah. she's on screen. Right. Whereas you're just more captivated by Dukat. You're just like, Oh my gosh, this, this is just like some amazing, amazing person I'm watching here. Um, just very interesting, very three dimensional, very fleshed out, very textured and layered in his motivations, his reasonings, everything. Right. Um, so when you really like lose sight of what the character at his core truly is. Yeah. It's very easy to kind of just, you know, go along with the stuff that he says, um, which I think is really what kind of, you know, made all of those things hard for the writers of the show to kind of reconcile and be like, okay, guys, we're, we're in the home stretch of the show here. We kind of need to establish the cut as a, a villain. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah well, I, I guess that would be the problem. Like I, I think the writers were wrong in what they were doing because well, well, I don't think that what they did here by sort of revealing what Ducat actually thinks is a problem, I think, I think that that actually works out pretty well. I, I think that the people before were a little bit confused about Ducat's justifications were never true. Like, Ducat, the way that Ducat sort of tried to justify his role in the Bajoran uh, occupation and everything like that, the way that he handled um, all of his responsibilities and all the actions that he did by sort of passing it off and passing the buck to other people, it was never... That was never borne out by the story. Ducat never had these episodes where he was shown as the person who was being taken advantage of by the Cardassian government, you know? So, the show never confused the audience about what his true personality was, which is why I think that this works, and it's not a betrayal of a morally gray Ducat, because I don't think morally gray Ducat exists. There's only Ducat who's very good at disguising what he actually thinks was existing. And... The thing here is that this episode goes to show you that he actually does believe that stuff. So, it's only his insanity that brings about the fact that he can, like, lower the veil on what he actually thinks and reveal it. But he does spend Mm -hmm. a good portion of the episode trying to convince other people of all of his justifications, only to reveal at the end that now even he realizes that none of this is true. He's He's no longer telling people who don't believe him. He himself no longer believes in it. Yeah. Well, and the thing is, there's also like two layers to this because there's that element of trying to convince people of the justifications of um, his rulership over Bajor back during the occupation. But there's also the added element in this episode where he's trying to convince Cisco um, to respect him. 
And that's why I think this really is just a powerhouse of an episode in terms of exploring Dukat's character, because Cisco is the one character where it means everything to Dukat for him to be proven wrong, or moreover, for Cisco to be... Um, you know, acknowledge him. over. Yeah. Yeah. And to, and to buy into what Dukat's saying, yep. you know, I, I feel like if, if Kira never went along with Dukat and this, the relationship stayed the same, I feel like he would be annoyed, but it would never break him in the same way that Cisco's denial of him is just eating at him. Again, this is all compounded by the previous events as well, but just in this episode, you can just really feel the, you know, the mental strain that he's having, just like, like the scene where he comes back and he's from the cave and he's talking to his uh, imaginary Wayun, which yeah. is amazing. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's like, why don't you just kill him? Why don't you just kill him? No, I need time. It's my time to waste. You know, it doesn't matter to him about time. I mean, at the end of the day, in terms of Cisco, it really doesn't matter to him, you know, even if he gets sent back to uh, prison if like the federation ship picks him up and yeah. things go on as planned if he had just gotten that recognition from cisco to him that would have been a been a victory yeah the um cisco's refusal to acknowledge him is actually what sort of triggers his final break there um, right. it kind of goes hand in hand with it i think that the um i think they i think they do a good job it's a it's a, it's a really strong um, performance by the two of them. I, th- I think that the main problem I have with Ducat and Cisco is that Ducat has a line where he says that um, Cisco is like the moral barometer of the universe or something like that. Which yeah, you're like the grand arbiter of right and wrong. Yeah, yeah. which I don't. I don't. I, I'm always a little bit confused about whether or not the show thinks that, or whether they understand that Cisco is the least uh, moral barometer of the captains that they've seen so far. So it's well, weird that Gold Ducat sees him that way. I believe he was saying that in terms of him being recognized as the emissary, right? Like, wasn't that the scene where, um, oh, what was it? Like, Cisco was saying no when trying to answer him. It is. He, he, was, he brings up the emissary, but I, I always catch yeah. it as a reference to, like, the Starfleet code of honor, basically. Like, they are, they're the ones who decide right and wrong and not Dukat and things like that. Oh. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I kind of see how it can tie in both ways you know i mean i think that there's a there's an added weight of uh cisco having so much command over um starfleet and the prophets and bajor at the same time both of which are things that the cot loaves so i think just the the duality of the things that cisco represents and commands to some capacity is what really kind of drives him batty a bit yeah yeah so you would um you would agree that this is a turn worthy of ducat i i think that this really works in terms of Ducat's yeah. characterization and arc here. I think that this, to this point and through this episode, this completely makes sense for Ducat. I think that they they almost deserve to be commended for not, for waiting six years, basically, before Ducat finally just spells out what he actually thinks about things. And the criticism would be that it's, what he thinks is actually too simplistic. But I don't, I don't buy that. Like, I, I believe that at his core, this is what he feels and like all of his justifications are window dressing so his break here and his final uh resolution of this is how my simplistic plan of i hate all the bajorans and i'm going to get vengeance on all of you that would that would actually make sense to me and i think that it's appropriate and the whole and the whole criticism of being simplistic doesn't make sense because simplistics would that would imply that you as a character are simplistic ducat 
um, if you're if your plan in and of itself, if your goal is simplistic, right? That does not make you a simplistic character because you still have a very complex set of um, motivations which enlighten to you know that character what that plan is. Um, like for example, let's take um, a character everyone loves recently. Let's take Thanos. Well, let's take let's take Infinity War Thanos. So everyone praises that character in that movie for being a very compelling character, not just like a you know big evil purple bad guy. Basically, I, I think he's just a big purple evil bad guy. I think. Oh, you do. You, you don't <laughs> think he's very interesting in Infinity War? No, Thanos. Okay. Thanos has like no, we don't have to get into it. I, I feel like Thanos okay. has no. <laughs> a uh, good idea about what he's doing basically but yeah, go, you can stick to the well, analogy I agree with his idea yeah I think it's pretty dumb I'm not going to say he's correct but I am going to say that I think again I, I I agree with this criticism way more in Endgame I, actually Thanos is my least favorite part about Endgame but anyway Infinity War Thanos at the very least um, is compelling at, at least in terms of how he justifies things in his own head um whether or not you believe it's correct or not, I think I I think what people really latch on to about Thanos is how how much he kind of drinks the own, his own Kool Aid to some extent. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so even if his plan at its core is just oh, just swipe away half of the universe, it's pretty straightforward. I mean, it's basically destroyed universe minus fifty percent. I mean, it's a pretty simplistic end goal. Yeah. What makes him compelling is all the different motivating factors and all the different. Um, struggles and trials that the character goes through to reach that goal you know i mean a lot of people kind of consider infinity war to be thanos's movie i mean he's kind of going through his own the villain's twist of the hero's journey within that story um and everyone else is kind of just an obstacle that he needs to get past so those are the elements that really make a character stand out and, and become memorable and interesting i think when it comes to writing compelling characters especially villainous characters in fiction it's really about the motivation um the reasonings the background um their environment the people that they play off of and that's and those are all elements that um back going back to uh, ds9 here that the cot has you know yeah. like you have Wei Yun, who has been such a pivotal character in terms of um really just bridling the uh, ambitions because he's always been a character who's been established to just you know go wherever the need is and just be very adaptable and you know, always thinking on his feet. You know, he's he's a character who's started as the um, um, let's see, uh, commander, I suppose, of Terek Nor at the start of the show. Yeah. Um, yeah. going from there to Grand Puba. The- <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so from there, um. To seeing some of the, the you know the the shadings of the Obsidian Order kind of crumbling down around him and his uh, disillusionment with what's going on within the internal internalness of the Cardassian government, to him just straight up going rogue on a Klingon bird of prey for like a season, um, and then when opportunity grants itself a, a role in terms of the uh, the Dominion and bringing Cardassian back to full glory, you know he's always been an ambitious character who will take whatever fate gives him in his own mind. Um, you know, so that's that's things that all of these characters kind of represent within him. So that's what this episode is really kind of breaking out. You know, um, Wei Yun represents the ambitions and the ideas and the goals and the you know, ah, oh, Cardassia of of Dukat. You know, to me, Damar is more of his actual morality and his conscience behind his decisions. Um, I don't want to call it just the the angel on his shoulder, but he's he's someone who can be the rational mind in Dukat's head. Um, oh, interesting. I curate- disagree. I, I think, oh, you do. I think okay. Demar 
Damar represents Ducat's incredibly high self-esteem of himself. He, he, it's like because Damar is the ass kisser in real life, his fantasy Damar is like 10 times as bad. Like he, he only talks about how great Ducat is. So it's, he represents Ducat's incredibly mm. high perception of his own self. Well, that's the thing though. Damar wasn't agreeing with Ducat in the episode, like, like the vision, like the, the in his mind, Damar, um, like he was the one telling him, Hey, you should just kill Cisco. Like, why are you sitting here, you know, blabbling on and trying to get him to respect you? You know, we, we could cause so much damage to uh, the Bajoran religion and um, the Federation if we just killed him here and be done with it. He's, he's, like, all, that doesn't seem like ass kissing. Really. He, he's the one praising the Cardassian way in a way that Kira is sort of antagonistic towards that. And Kira represents Dukat's doubt about himself. I think Damar is the yeah. other person. I, I don't think they're like, they're not angel and devil representations, but they're right. kind of like splits amongst how Dukat views himself. Uh, and Wayun represents the, um, Wayun actually sort of more just represents like the Dominion, like what Dukat thinks about the Dominion and what he should have done and things like that. Like the, the Dominion are what Dukat would have done if he had the power of the Dominion behind him in his mind. Anyway, that's my opinion. Yeah, no. I'm, and the thing is, there's there's multiple angles to it too. So I can I can see how um, with Wei Yun, how you know, for me, I think some of it um, is tied into his ambitions. But that you can also um, tie that in where it's it's his, uh, it's his ambitions that also that has also failed him, um, and how much he wants those um, those goals back, and how much that he feels like he is just you know failed in terms of being in the graces of the dominion and how much he's failed his people um do you think with the more well do you think oh, yeah and do you think the cor- the chorus works in your opinion the uh the chorus of imaginary headpieces which is kira damar and wayun like how they're presented in the episode yeah you, you think they work in the episode oh yeah for sure i i think the only kind of weird thing is how i think a bit over the top nana visitor goes in a couple scenes yeah she gets a little like she's just like maniacally laughing <laughs> i mean i get what this i get what they're going for um but i think she might have went a tad too far but the rest of it i love i oh man i i, I love uh Wayne's little snide remarks you know um i think it's well directed like too Aubergine oh, did yeah. a good job of sort of um as ducat is walking around they kind of like it, move the characters around between them. them. Yeah. yeah. Right. Exactly. Well, I love, I love the one in particular where he's giving his epic uh, rant about the Bajorans and, you know, he's like, Oh yes. And the Bajoran terrorists killed 200 Cardassians. So 200 lives for 200 lives. And he walks around and Wayun's there and it's like, Oh yes. The, you know, <laughs> yeah. um, Dominion much more generous than right. <laughs> you know, much more generous than Dominion would have been. Um, I think they, so, I yeah, think they I, work as well. I'm, I'm always scared when they do things like that or any show does things like that because I think that they potentially become too broad but I, I think at, at least in the way that I interpret them I like how they are representative of uh, Ducat's personality I feel they've done this before in a previous DS9 episode and it didn't go quite as well I'm having a hard time thinking about what episode it would be but um, like actual characters representing re- his represent thoughts? not not Ducat but uh, actual characters okay. representing other it's probably in like a dream sequence episode or something um, oh, like okay. what's the one where 
uh, Bashir, the terrible Bashir episode where he has the visions of uh, living on the empty station where the guy's trying to like steal his brain power or something. And he, he visualizes oh, the other characters, but it's terrible in the, the way that Lethian they do it. The assassin guy, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, that, the, um, yeah. That's, I forget Dangerous Minds or whatever that episode's called, but they yeah. they don't do it nearly as well in that one as they do here. I think it's it's pretty subtle, and I would I would 100% agree that Visitor's performance is probably the biggest problem and i i understand why she's doing it because she's supposed to be the mocking irritant to him like it's it's the loathing self-doubt and needs to be a little bit over the top but i feel she's a it's it's really just a lot of fake laughing and fake laughing never never really comes across (laughs) well when an actor tries to do it so i think that's the problem yeah i mean and it's a shame too because kira definitely represents that angle for dakot i think more than anyone else because i feel like someone like uh Jeffrey Combs would pull off that part of it better than Nana, um, but it wouldn't make sense in terms of the character. Um, like, I don't think Dukat represents, uh, you know, I mean, I'm sorry, I don't, I don't think Wayun rather represents Dukat's um, failures, you know, yeah, yeah quite yeah. as much as Kira does. Yep. Yeah, um, I, I think it works really well. That that uh, speech that Alemo delivers is probably the highlight of the episode, just where he, where he finally oh, yeah. breaks and sort of realizes what's been going on. Um, we can move it to. What do you think? Oh, go ahead. Well, the the other thing would be like Avery Brooks is the other half of this acting. That's what I was going to go. Thing. I was actually going to ask you about. Yeah, Cisco. I, I don't like it here. I don't think it's a good Avery mm-hmm. Brooks performance. And I, the more we watch the show, the more, the more I think that Avery Brooks's performances sometimes hinder more than they really help. Like he's he's probably not a. He he probably does more damage to some scenes and, and damage in the relative sense where it's like, I don't think he's like destroying the scenes, but he is not helping in, in a lot of ways. And uh, we'll, we'll have more of these episodes pop up, but I, I don't, I'm not crazy about his performance here. It's just too, Cisco when he moralizes is not as effective as Patrick Stewart as Picard doing it. And I feel that the writer's, this ties into like the the moral barometer that Dukat claims that Cisco is. I think writing Cisco and writing Avery Brooks that way doesn't work as well. I think a- Brooks's delivery and Brooks's sort of attitude and Brooks's performance and the way that he plays Cisco it's different than that. Like he he, he his his understanding of the high ground doesn't seem to have the like the clarity that Picard has, and it's a different series. But I think that they write him trying to make him sort of a Picard character and he's not that and I don't think it I don't think it pays off in the performance mm-hmm. or the characterization. So you feel like what's happening in the episode is Cisco is kind of just sitting back and let him and letting the cop prove how wrong he is and while he's and how much more correct Cisco is by comparison. Yes, and then, because and, I, and then at the well they they just have horrible scenes like the the ending scene, the ending button where Cisco's talking to Dax is terrible. It's it's a really bad scene that is <laughs> it's totally unnecessary to include that and I don't even yeah. think that the problem of where uh, where Ducat goes like totally crazy and is like I'll kill you all and then runs off is that bad. I think it's just the fact that they have Cisco bluntly restate what we just watched for 40 minutes. And it's really, mm. I, I think that maybe Patrick Stewart could pull something like that off, but I don't think Avery Brooks is up to it. And it comes across as a little bit hokey or a lot of bit hokey, actually. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I get that. The thing is when it comes to Cisco's role in the episode, I never, I never thought it was him uh, moralizing as much as it was him, like egging it out of Dakot, 
and him just well, kind he, of but he's moralizing the conversation. he's moralizing by being antagonistic like he, he's making a it's not a very hard line to moralize when when someone's claiming that okay. they want to commit genocide but cisco is right. playing the <laughs> the role of this is the right thing and he is egging him on to draw that out of him but when cisco mm-hmm. starts yelling back at him i don't find it very effective he doesn't do it a lot but I, he, he does it enough in this episode where i don't think it works for that character of cisco to do it that way I would have preferred if he'd stayed quiet the entire time. You know what I mean? If he had not said anything back to him, I would have thought that was a better way for Cisco to play this. Oh, interesting. Well, I feel like part of what would egg on the cut wouldn't be him being silent because what because again there's two driving factors. There's the elements of, you know, drawing out the cut's true um, feelings and intentions and all that, but it's also the approval aspect from Cisco. So if he would have stayed silent, I mean, I know you could probably find a way to work this into the episode, but with how the episode is playing it and how it's kind of building itself in terms of what um, Dukat wants for Cisco to do, um, I don't think that would have even happened if Cisco hadn't have just really got into it and shared his true feelings. I mean, there's like a solid. 10 minutes before Cisco even gives like any sort of opinion on Dukat at all. Um, and it kind of just spirals from there. Um, so at that point, I feel like Cisco is really just trying to um, lay the cards on each side of the table as, as it were to, um, to just keep Dukat going forward with it. Because I feel like if he would have stayed silent, it wouldn't have, uh, it wouldn't have just, progressed the way it did or maybe it would have just stopped altogether i mean i don't know i mean there's definitely there's definitely different ways you could have written the the scenes to play out um would you would you say that i guess i guess it would come down to do you find cisco to be the character that this episode writes him as i guess like the, the the episode to me implies a kind of clarity to cisco that I think is only obvious because of how evil Dukat is, and it's not like it's not like Cisco is a a moral beacon in the way that uh, yeah. Picard or Kirk were kind of designed to be. Cisco mm-hmm. is a different DS Nine version of that, which is he's much more pragmatic. He's like the Nixon of the the uh, captains. He he's the He's the one that's willing to sort of bend things a little bit, and so when Dukat thinks of him this way, it seems to be a mistake. And there have been other episodes that we brought this up where people's perception, um, Cisco and Eddington, always felt off to me because it never felt like Eddington really understood Cisco. Like he was always describing someone that I would not say was Cisco's characterization. And I think Dukat kind of falls into the the, the same problem here. Oh, okay. I see. I see the angle you're saying because I know with Eddington, it was very much of him trying to almost act out his own little world with Cisco. Um, and him kind of viewing Cisco as the villain in his own story and everything. Um, Isn't that the same thing here? Um, well, in, in Dukat's mind, Cisco is definitely an antagonist, but an antagonist that he wants not only to respect, but also to have some sort of harmony with, I would I'd feel at some point. Like, like, like if, all right, humor, humor me here. So do you think if... Cisco in this episode would have just done what Dukat wanted from the start. Um, and even if it was a lie, just kind of said, oh, yeah, I respect you, Dukat. I understand the struggles you went through. Do you think at that point, Dukat would have just accepted that and, you know, 
moved on, I suppose, and maybe not no, have a breakdown? Or, he's too, okay. Ducat's too smart of a character. If they had gone that way, okay. Ducat would have seen through it by the end, and then that's where the madness would come from, I think. You could, you could write it mm. that way, I think. But Ducat is not the kind of character that would fall for um, placation like that. I think he's a little bit more intelligent. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, so then that stands then. Um, yeah, I feel like Cisco is, um, is maybe, and I wouldn't say he's out of character, maybe just more that he's pushing his character. Like he's, I feel like his character is being pushed to its limits more than usual. Um, because of circumstance, which to me, as long as circumstance justifies a character, I don't want to say a switch, but maybe a, um, a slight, you know, detour, um, it still feels in character. Like, um, like you're bringing up characters like Picard and Kirk. So let's say Kirk, for example, you know, Kirk is mostly in character for the majority of TOS in the movies, but, um, one of the standout scenes for him as a character for me has always been his uh, his speech at the beginning of Undiscovered Country, where uh, he's just showing his pure hatred for the Klingons, right? Which I know you could argue has always been in character to some extent, but to that degree, especially in an ambassador hall, um, you know, having that rage simmer there, knowing that it came from a personal place with the loss of his son via the Klingons, with all of the stuff he's gone through of losing his ship and his career being nuked for a bit until he saved the world through time travel because he's Kirk. Yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway, um, you know, that, that whole part in that first act of that movie felt like, man, this is a really just angry and bitter Kirk, which some could argue is out of character, but you know, it still makes sense because of everything built around it. You know, so in 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 the terms of Cisco, um, his egging on to cut maybe feels a bit, um, uh, yeah, it's, it's it definitely feels a bit maybe uh, uh, I don't know what the right word would be, just not unusual, I would say, in that circumstance. Um, but I feel like it still makes sense given I, the given the circumstances. Yeah, I guess I would clarify by just I I think his egging him on makes sense. I think that okay. the, I think my problem with it is probably just the fact that it, it's it probably all comes down to how Ducat views Cisco, which I think which I think is just not the way that he should view him. I, I think viewing him as a kind of rival that he wants the respect of is an appropriate way for Ducat to see him. I I just have Ducat mentions a handful of times about how Cisco always sees himself as right. And I think that that's, it just felt a little bit off. It, it felt a little bit not like Ducat was really understanding what Cisco was getting at there. And it might be just the, mm. um, it might just be the Ducat's in denial about what he actually thinks. Well, you know what? I could, you can make the argument that from the character's perspective, like if you think of how the events of this show has played out through the eyes of um, purely Ducat without the third person narrative of, of you're watching the show, I could see how he could think that. You know, because Ducat hasn't spent a ton. I mean, there's a few episodes, but I can't remember too many other episodes where a vast majority of the screen time has been Ducat and Cisco together on screen. Um, usually, might be a uh, you know a communique here and there, and um, perhaps the meet on the ship or something. But my point is, is that seeing the stuff that Cisco has pulled off. I mean, again, let's let's reference Sacrifice of Angels. I mean, the dude literally just watched Cisco on the Defiant, go through the wormhole, 
and then comes back out and his <laughs> and his whole fleet is just blipped out of existence. Mm-hmm. You know, like from that mindset, you might think, "What the man, what's how is he doing this? Right? Yeah. <laughs> how yeah. is Cisco so like incredible? <laughs> right? <laughs> and, and I'm sure that he probably could it could formulate that. Yeah, there's no way that the Defiant took on a whole fleet. Mm-hmm. Um, he probably had some sort of divine intervention from the prophets or did something to manipulate the wormhole. Um, but still, the point remains that. Dakota's just been seeing this miraculous win after miraculous win from Cisco, and Cisco's just kind of sitting there like, "Yeah, yeah, what's up?" <laughs> you know, yeah. like like Cisco's not being humble about it, which I think also is what really gets to to um, Dakota as well on some level because you know, Dakot wants to feel like the superior man. I don't want to sound you know mas- overly masculine here, but he wants to feel like he is the the true top dog in charge on a tactical level, on a moral level, on a cultural level, you know, like he's the kind of character who wants Cisco to know how he's wrong on a fundamental level. And every event that's happened in the show was kind of just send set the opposite. Um, So without any other previous times within the show to kind of reconcile this stuff, I could see how this being just this, this really boiling point for, you know, for Takat just, uh, you know, leading to the events we have here. Yeah, it's interesting. The, um, he, cause he has that line about the, oh, the one thing I like about the speech is that it actually, uh, when he starts going crazy is that it, it gives a little bit of insight into the, um, setup of the Cardassian occupation, basically, which is oh, that yeah. the Bajorans were just, were just so far behind the Cardassians and the Cardassians see themselves as superior. And it's like, and they, they actually mm-hmm. bring up the praying thing and everything like that. It's um, yeah. The, the Cardassians are interesting. They're 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 pretty. Um, the the writers did a good job of just drawing out a sort of archetype for the Cardassians that fits a lot of um, sort of modern conflict. I guess would be the way to describe it. Like it's a, it's yeah. A, they're go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, it, it, they're a, gonna... they're they're a kind of <laughs> they're a good analogy for like the way that. Um, Islamist terror kind of got built up in a way like they are a there's a sense of like how can we be the promised people but not be succeeding at what's going on like why is everyone else doing better than we are when we're supposed to be the the chosen ones basically and that th- mm, like they, yeah. they, the writers did a good job of getting that across with Dukats and I think they've done a good job with the Cardassians in general um, you can yeah. respond to that, and then I just have one other point. I think about what one thing I would have changed with their dynamic. But if you want to uh, uh, say anything about that, or you wanted to say something earlier, yeah, I mean, I was just going to bring up the point. That I think, yeah, the Cardassians are a very layered race. You know, there there's not one key focal point aspect you can kind of draw upon to say this is what the Cardassians are. I mean, as much as I love so many of the races amongst Star Trek, I mean, you know, you have the Klingons who the first thing you think of is war and honor and warriors and, you know, mm-hmm. and the first thing you think about with the uh, the Vulcans is peace and logic and tranquility and no emotion. The first thing you think about when you think of the Romulans is subterfuge and deceitfulness and, you know, uh, covert tactics. The first things you think about with Starfleet and the Federation is harmony and utopia and peace and um, you know broad communications and yeah. So my point is is that there's so many different this little nuances to the Cardassians without the, within the show that makes them so much more um, compelling, especially as an antagonist because it gives so many different motivating reasons for specific Cardassian characters to be the way they are. I mean, we tied this back into the. 
um, previous comparisons of how this episode feels like a much, uh, you know, heavily inspired version of Duet. You know, so you have two episodes featuring two Cardassians, right? Both of which come from a very similar background within the Bajoran occupation, how much um, the stuff they've seen has affected them um, and their personal feelings towards Bajorans. And it goes completely different ways, you know, yep. from the same race, you know, which is, which is really compelling. Um, one of which is through the mind of someone with a Bajoran woman being the incarnation of, you know, that person's uh, failures. And the other one having that literal woman like dogging him for crimes he didn't even commit. So it just, you know, you, you have so many different ways to take the Cardassians within all of their history and what um, different races mean to them um, and, their, and their goals and the ways that the uh, you can just have them morph in different ways. I mean, the Cardassians in the current state of the show being kind of under the boot heels of the Dominion um, is such an interesting thing because no other race would do that. You know, you wouldn't have the Klingon submit to, you know, some bigger warrior race. So they no, I would rather die first. You know, the only thing you have that can maybe be argued is the Borg because they literally assimilate cultures by force. Um, but you know, that's a universal evil in the world of Star Trek. So everyone can band together against the Borg versus because the dominion is much more of a nuanced and more subtle threat. You know, have, you have can contracts. have cultures. The dominion like well, to sign yeah. contracts. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, and you can have, you know, races like the Cardassians that could feel swayed by that. You know, characters like Dukat who could be like, hmm, this could be an opportunity, you know? Like, no one would ever say that about the Borg unless you're writing a bad Voyager episode. <clears throat> but, you know. My, <laughs> but seriously, like, the, like the, uh, the Cardassians are a very textured race within, within Star Trek, and I think that it's really awesome that a character like Dukat can be, you know, so multifaceted in, in how many ways he can view situations as the unfold because of his background as a Cardassian in their culture. But anyway, that was, that was a long spiel. <laughs> I think, I think the one thing, the one thing I would have changed or I would have highlighted because I, I think they say this, like I, I'm pretty sure that they uh, cut to commercial and Ducat goes to town on Cisco with a pipe for a couple minutes. And then he, and then we come back he and he will not betray and, me. And then he's, <laughs> like, I'm, yeah. I'm, a, I'm a little, it's a little bit of the era that they don't show him beating him more. And I think that, I think the episode actually would have benefited from a, like a miseryification of it. Like if they had done the, you know, misery, the movie with um, the Stephen King book, if, if they had done more of the angle of Cisco is trapped there, immobilized, and he's dealing with an increasingly irrational person who is willing to do great violence to him. I, I would have, that would have worked with the the egging on type thing, and I think that that would have supported Cisco not really saying things, but kind of trying to hint to Ducat what's going on. And I I think that I needed that a little bit. I I never feel like Cisco is in tremendous danger throughout this entire episode, and I think that they wanted to get that point across. But Ducat is so um, cordial to him for a long time through it that I don't think. Outside of his final break, you really get a sense that Cisco's in any kind of severe danger, or that Cisco knows that he's in severe danger. Hmm. Do you think this episode would have benefited from maybe a PG thirteen rating or something? It just needed a like little in the bit more. Sense? Yeah, it just needed a little bit more. Like I would have, you know, hit him with a pipe a couple times, like throughout the yeah. thing. Like just a little <laughs> bit more of like Cisco is trying to tread lightly with a crazy person. Um, and that doesn't mm. really come across here all that much until the end. And I think it would have been a little bit more 
there would have been a little bit more drama and Cisco would have had to be a little bit more creative in his problem solving if that had been the case. I feel like it was actually the most effective, at least for me at the beginning, um, where you assume that the, uh, what was it? The uh, distress beacon was working, but uh, Ducat had, you know, fooled, well, not fooled, but, you know. Um, he just told him it wasn't working, which, right. which is the most yeah. clumsy execution of that is like, this side says on, this side says off. And it's like, okay, which which one is it, yeah. Dylan? <laughs> right, exactly. Um, but regardless, I, I, I felt like that was effective just because, you know, that's when that's when you, the audience, could feel that there is something more going on here. There is, um, but I don't feel that Ducat is scary at that point. Like, there's no... Hmm. When Cisco figures that out, it's not like Ducat is like, now I'm going to, like, torture you because you figured out... The, like, there's a... It's a... I, I think that... You know, it is very similar to Misery in a lot of ways, but I think that they just don't stress the fact that Cisco is walking on eggshells around him, and I think that that should be the case. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I see that. I, I feel like the episode does its best with that kind of thing. Um, like, it would have been nice to maybe have a bit more visual storytelling in terms of, uh, like, Cisco hiding his tools, like the broken-off work piece that he kind of puts under the blanket, um, which only gets revealed after another conversation where he kind of moves around. Like, if there was a bit more tension with, like, oh, that, you almost saw that or whatever, yeah. um, things to help build up that um, – up to what Cisco is really doing and Dakot realizing that it would have at the very least added to the, uh, the weight of the reveal. Yeah. They, um, they kind of do I, do it. They just don't, they don't stress it. Like they, I, right, I acknowledge they that it it's enough. there, but I feel it should just be a more prominent part of their interactions with each other. Right. Well, not to mention it always, I mean, within that opening first 20 minutes as well, there's a lot of jump cuts between that happening and the defiant, which, which makes sense. I mean, I think I like the editing because whenever the, the stress call, the stress beacon would go online or offline immediately cuts to, Hey, we're sensing a beacon. Oh, okay. Back to Cisco, you know? So it makes sense. I like it, but maybe in terms of keeping you in the moment within the tension involved, maybe that was also a bit of a, a factor as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, speaking of real quick on the defiant though, I kind of liked, again, this is something I feel like, like DS9 can only kind of do in a in a way more than TNG, where when they're looking for the survivors, right, um, and they find the first distress beacon, and it's not Cisco, it's just like a couple random uh, civilians. Yeah, like it's an interesting fake so, out. Right. Well, they're trying. Well, yeah. Well, that. But I love how the characters are trying so hard to act like happy. It's like, yeah, we rescued them, but yeah. it's yeah. not Cisco. <laughs> you know, yeah. like like this trying to hide that disappointment involved, which you know is so it's so like refreshing because it feels so human. Like, does it feel like, yes, we are all Starfleet officers. We love every one of our crew equally. Yeah, does it matter yeah. that we've been fighting blood and tears for like six years? And no, you're, you're Starfleet. Therefore you're just as good. I mean, you know, that's what the mandate would want, would like you to kind of feel. But I just like how there's a nice little touch of characters going, Oh, it's just two random women. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. I wonder <laughs> if they, I thought that maybe they oversold it a little, a little bit or something like O'Brien. It's just like yeah, it's just some ensign and lieutenant. Like, yeah, who cares? Um, <laughs> yeah. I, and worse, like, all right, carry on. <laughs> I understand what they. It's, it's. I think it's just a holdover of the era. Like they, they have to sell things a little bit bigger than I think that they should. If it was like a film or a modern TV show, I think like you could what you could get away with a look in a modern TV show. You can't really get away with that. They have to say something in Star Trek, and I think that does a little bit of damage. I, I don't mind the defiant scenes here. I think it's a fairly effective. Yeah. 
plot that is not really totally necessary at all, but it just uses it to sort of split up time. But it's effective for what it is. Yeah, I mean, it's well, the thing is, it's not them sitting on the ship that's going towards the location. It's them reacting to events happening on the planet. Like, you'll only cut to the Defiant when, you know, the... Uh, yeah, I they're, they're kind of the sitting name. around on the ship. <laughs> well, they, they are, but it doesn't linger on it, is what I'm saying. They're only it doing it when it serves what's happening on the surface, and it goes back to Cisco. Um, it's not like a whole stretch of an episode where it's just like, hey, we're sitting around joking. Yeah, yeah. Um, I feel like the only part on the Defiant that was kind of like, eh was when they have like the garbled communication from Kira mm-hmm. and they're like, yeah, did you get what she said? Nope. No, I didn't either. What about you, Dax? Nope. You didn't either. Oh, what about worth? It's like, mm-hmm. I heard her. Okay. Yeah. That, I, yeah. I did. I did like that. He's old uh, Bashir to get the fuck out of the, the room, which was <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> that was a pretty yeah. um, aggressive character interaction. They don't always see on Star Trek. Um, yeah. But yeah, let's, uh, we're going to take a break. We're going to play an audio clip. Me and Isaac are going to come back. We'll read some patron thoughts, and then we'll give our final thoughts about Waltz. Because they were blind, ignorant fools. If only they had cooperated with us, we could have turned their world into a paradise. From the moment we arrived on Bejor, it was clear that we were the superior race. But they couldn't accept that. They wanted to be treated as equals when they most certainly were not. Militarily, technologically, culturally, we were almost a century ahead of them in every way. We did not choose to be the superior race. Fate handed us that role, and it would have been so much easier on everyone if the Bajorans had simply accepted their role. But no, day after day, They clustered in the temples and prayed for deliverance. And night after night, they planted bombs outside of our homes. Pride. Stubborn, unyielding pride. From the servant girl that cleaned my quarters, to the condemned man toiling in a labor camp, to the terrorist skulking through the hills of Dakoa province. They all wore their pride like some twisted badge of honor. Hey everyone, it's Clay uh, with a couple quick thoughts on Waltz because I couldn't be there for the show. Uh, really liked this episode. It kind of, They kind of figured out that uh, taking Cisco and stranding him somewhere isolated with a villain is a really good formula uh, because this one kind of felt a little bit like Rocks and Shoals Light. I don't even know if it's light because I thought the episode was really great. Uh, it felt like a cross between Rocks and Shoals and Duet, which is, you know, can't really go wrong there. Um, I like the wharf honor scene on the on the Defiant. I thought that was pretty interesting. That That whole Defiant thing was, you know, it is. It was what it was. You have to get them there uh, to find them, but it, at least it was very um, short, and they didn't spend a lot of time there. And they did have that little bit of honor stuff to make it at least a little bit interesting, ethically and whatnot. Um, but overall, yeah, it's the kind of episode that you can't really do unless you've spent six seasons with these characters. So I think it was. Uh, it was a really great look into the motivations and the history of Ducat in a way that we hadn't seen before and uh, really repositions him 
as a, a major threat going forward. And the, the last line from Cisco about uh, you know it being him or me was I thought really great. So overall, it's a, this one's a five for me. I thought this was a fantastic episode, and uh, I'll see you guys next time. Bye. All right. So thank you guys. If you enjoyed the content today, you can support the show at patreon.com slash the Penske file. And if you are a captain tier, you get a shout out and I'm going to do that now. So a special thank you to Andrew Sherlock, Ben Douglas, Bradley Killens, Captain Quark, Cardinal Doomsday, Christian Pouch, David Kay, Dwayne Hackett, Eric Johnson, Yarpy, Joint Mango, Kevin Reyes, Kyle Barrett, Matt Cutler, Matt Ross, Mike Burnett, Nathan Elliott, Neil Brennan, Nick Sergi, Robert Cummins, Russell Elledge, Samuel Custer, Grim Santo, Sean Spinobi, Stephen Cobb, Tark Latif, and Will Yates. Thank you very much for supporting the show. Who's that Spinobi guy? I don't know. He sounds, sounds like, like a, a real asshole, one. though. Yeah, so yeah, <laughs> the last, seriously. Last time God, we'll get him out of there. <laughs> um, For real. So let's do patron thoughts now, I guess. We have about nine of them. So we will start at the top here with Point Extra G. This feels like a stage play, mainly just two guys on a single set with other characters popping in here and there. The setting is very small and intimate, and it's a nice change for Star Trek. Captain Quark says, I have mixed feelings about this two-man play episode. The performances are great, particularly the always awesome Marco Lamo as Gold Ducat. I enjoy how the writers characterize Ducat as a man obsessed with craving admiration. That being said, I think that the events of Sacrifice of Angels was a fitting conclusion to the Ducat storyline. I feel like the character is rather superfluous at this point. I freely admit, however, that I've yet to watch the entire series, so maybe he goes on to aggrieve greater heights of villainy. Wah, wah, wah. Norman Buckwald says, <laughs> Waltz is fine, but obviously this was in the shadow of Duet and could never really compare. Somehow stating that Ducat was under psychiatric observation and spoke to them showed that this was the case, showed in this case Starfleet was either very poor in their psychiatric care, or they simply didn't care. It might have been easier if there was some other explanation, some new Federation drug with serious side effects, or maybe the first appeal of the Powerwraiths. First, uh, yeah, the first appearance of the Powerwraiths. For these imaginary people... Where out of all of them, interestingly enough, Zayal never appears. The acting is actually quite good. As for the fake out of the two other officers being beamed aboard DS9, talk about cruelty to the audience. One plot point was that had to be made. Would Kira be the one calling the shots of when the Defiant must leave? Was Barry Jenner just not available that week as it would have made more sense for Admiral Ross to give the orders? And for all of these statistics that Bashir was known for, it was interesting that it was he who was insisting that they stick around longer to find Cisco. Enough that Worf considered Bashir insubordinate and removed him from the bridge. Demonstrating Bashir may be the most devoted and loyal to crew friendship family than the rest with respect to his character. That is a good point about uh, Bashir not being the stats head in that case, uh, which would seem mm-hmm. he would be the one who would be telling everybody that they have to go. Where where is uh, Admiral Ross, by the way? Like at this point, like after the events of Sacrifice of Angels, I guess he's still at that starbase, right? He's just hanging out there, waiting for the next big thing. <laughs> really? Uh, okay. Zam Nuclear Vessels uh, Wessel. I always I always mispronounce this joke. His name is uh, yeah. obviously a joke, and I always mispronounce it because I overthink the joke, and so I like <laughs> adapt my. But Zam Nuclear Wessel says, "I like this a lot until the very last few minutes when everybody starts explaining everything." Ducat's threats against the Borg ring uh, against Bajor, excuse me, ring hollow because it's not new information and seems kind of petty now that there's a war on. Whereas the female changeling's similar threats against Cardassia back in season four were much more interesting because we were still learning about her and her goals and what they might mean. That's a good point. Mm. Well, it's new information, like, maybe not for the character, but for other characters, you know, like with his, re- like with his revelation. With I, I, I think it's just he, he finally says it is the thing. Like, yeah. I, I think that we know what Ducat's up to. It's just him getting to admit to himself that that's what he's up to, where the female changeling yeah. is new information about them. 
Yeah. Okay. Uh, Matthew Ross says, Waltz kept me thinking it was indiscretion two. Which one's indiscretion? I can't remember. Indiscretion. Indiscre- mm-hmm. uh, the fact that these characters detest each other comes across clearly, but there's still a begrudging respect. Uh, I think is indiscretion the, uh, that's where they find Zial. It might be. Uh, the effects of the war shows just how stretched this Starfleet is, uh, is that no search and rescue can be sent. Dukat's madness is well on display, and Combs' mental wayun is just taunting enough to make you understand Dukat's disgust at his former handler, as well as his inner annoyance at Kira and Damar. The distress unit's own wor- the distress unit's own wonkiness makes me question, but for a moment, whether Dukat actually disabled the machine. Oh, distress unit. Okay, distress beacon. Uh, the banter on yeah, saving yeah. Cisco actually seems selfish on the Defiant, especially considering the troop transports. Otherwise, Alemo rules this episode, from calm and scheming to sorrowful and ranting, clearly insane. Ducat simply wants credit for being a be- uh, beneficent... God damn it, my, my brain is fried. A benevol- <laughs> I think he meant benevolent. A benevolent dictator for anything. But he raises good points. A callback to the commander of Hendersonville in the U.S. Civil War. An enjoyable episode of madness. And next comment hmm. is, Will Yates says, I may be mistaken, but I think this is the first time Ducat calls Cisco Benjamin. That, in and of, of itself, told me a lot. One thing I can agree on is that Ducat has, time and time again, proven himself a dangerous man. I actually really appreciated the countdown from the rescue team and totally understood it. I think the only chink in the armor is that Cisco didn't kill Ducat despite himself. Cisco has rarely been a man of half measures, a theme he himself questioned and reflected on in his cold open. It's a good point. He does just hit him with the pipe. It's a very cliche thing of knock him out and then wait for him to come back and wake up and attack me again at the end. Yeah. Uh, What do you you think on the concept of what if Dukat died here? Now, I know that, you know, that might have an opinion swap knowing what happens with the rest of the show of Dukat. But just if you divorce that from the issue and you had just seen this episode... And if Ducat had have died in this episode, do you think that would have been a satisfying conclusion to the character? Or if you just never see him again, I think it's also... Right, one, that, of, one of the two. Yeah, I think it's fine. I think that would be a fine end for him. And I don't even... Okay. I am not uh, up to date enough on how it goes from here for him to even oh, know you're if, not. if I... I mean, I, I know what happens, but I, don't, I haven't okay. seen it recently enough to know whether or not I think it's as bad as it's made out to be. Um, it's... Uh, it's not awful. I, I think it's overly hated upon, and I think a lot of that comes from the fact that people just adored this character up to this point. So whenever you take an absolutely beloved character and do something sort of different and maybe not as masterfully done as the rest of it, it's going to just come off as a bit weak by yeah. comparison. Again, not to draw back to it, but it's kind of like my complaint with uh, Endgame, which is like, I loved Thanos so much, and oh, he just wants to wipe out everything now. Okay. Why? <laughs> but Why does Thanos want to wipe out everything? <laughs> that, that's because my, that's my problem. Because this world isn't perfect. Why can't I just wipe away the impurities that, that, and make it the, as beautiful as me? My, my problem with Thanos <laughs> is like, at least from the movie, is that he has no good reason for what he's doing. Like, there is, if he had a single justification for what he was trying to do, beyond the fact that the people eat too much food or whatever he says, like, (laughs) maybe I would be, I would, I think Thanos would be a great villain if the reason that he thinks overpopulation is happening was actually shown Mm -hmm. to be the case. But they don't show that. There's no, there's no showing that that's the case. Well, they do tell that. I mean, they show the background of what happened to his own planet. You know, and but the, the, it's, the, it's how, the galaxy. The galaxy is huge. Why? Why is he so concerned about this at this point? Well, I mean, again, I'm not saying he's correct, but I can see how that from seeing his own background and seeing how that would affect multiple planets. I mean, 
wasn't it the fact that um oh, what uh, what planet was it? I think that one of the Guardians, one of the places they visit out of nowhere, kind of has a similar problem. Like, wasn't it where he got the gauntlet from from uh, uh, the dwarf guy? I, I, wasn't that a planet that used to be like used to be like heavily of a like has bleh, had like a huge population of their people, mm-hmm. and then you know after Thanos came and and took all of their stuff, they're just like, oh, okay, well, I guess we're kind of screwed now <laughs> but every, everyone can um, travel through space in this universe why why is overpopulating a planet a big deal so can everyone like on earth like we have our heroes but can just random humans do this but why can't if there are heroes then then they must be they'd be able to save the people like i just i think thanos is thanos's plan or like thanos's answer to the problem is an interesting mm-hmm. solution but he does not state why this is a problem enough for it to make any sense like he his the the reason to go Thanos basically just says I believe this just because that's like the that's the whole point of Thanos is like original point if there was a if he was some sort of tragic figure who knew that something bad was going to happen and he made this decision I would feel like you'd be like oh what an interesting characterization but he seems to just be an insane person who believes a nonsense belief and is willing to die for it or willing to kill for it it sounds like he might have wanted like the opposite of Endgame. Or instead of finding like a past Thanos who's never met anyone anyone prior, you get like this future Thanos who's like seen all the devastation. Is like, all right, I'm back. I need to stop this. You mm. know, like he does like the time heist basically or yeah, something. Yeah, I, I haven't like seen that game, so I don't know if they oh, you flesh haven't. It. No, but I, I assume they don't oh. flesh it out. Other than he's just sort of living through Whoops, this or whatever. Like, I I just assume since it's like literally the biggest movie of all time. No, I just I don't give a fuck. About it. Oh, <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't care about the spoilers either. Like, do they do oh. they do they ret, do they not retcon it? But do they have like some moment where he explains his entire thought process? No, it gets worse because what happens is they kill the Thanos from Infinity War in like the first ten minutes, which I thought was awesome. But then what happens is that they do this massive time heist to get all the stones mm-hmm. um, to reverse the snap. Um, but because of and this is also bad writing, but because of convenience with Gamora. I mean, sorry, not Gamora, uh, the other one, Nebula, um, from the past that ties into like the future, the future Nebula. Um, past Thanos gets alerted to what they're doing, so then past Thanos, with no, with none of the events of what happened to him in Infinity War, goes in to try to stop like them from achieving that, from killing um, him. Basically, I'd assume. Well, from, yeah, from, yeah, from killing him and his army and also reversing the snap. Mm. And the thing is, seeing this past Thanos, his reasoning is now, okay, so it looks like my plan worked, but humanity was ungrateful. So it seems like the only course of action left is just to wipe out literally everything but down past, to the last atom. Does past Thanos have the same rationale for what he was doing? Or is this like a past Thanos where he has not yet arrived that he needs to snap? You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, he's well. The thing is, he sees. Well, he literally sees the uh, the final moments of the Infinity War Thanos before he dies. Mm. Um, and he says something like, uh, "Oh yeah, this is destiny fulfilled." So I think he still believes that what he was going to do was correct at the time. Okay. But then because he sees that that failed, then oh, I need to do a course correction. But his course correction is now just wiped out literally everything. Right. And the thing is, it kind of loses a lot of its like. Uh, emotional weight behind it because you have characters like for example thor who's been affected all you know just horribly because he just feels like he's failed from um not killing him when he had the chance and everything um and a lot of characters have like so much personal just you know investment with thanos 
And then like there's literally I mean it's, it's a comedic line, but there's literally a character who is really mad at Thanos in like the final act and he's just like I don't even know who you are. Mm, <laughs> like, yeah. It's yeah, so again I actually like Endgame. I would recommend watching it. It's a, it's a fun movie. I think it's a very satisfying movie. Like if that movie is the last and it's not. I mean I already saw Spider-Man Far From Home, but if it was the last MCU movie, I would be okay with it because it, it's a very satisfying movie for what it does with the majority of its characters. But yeah. the time travel does not make sense. This is coming from a lifelong Star Trek fan. It does not make sense. Mm. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll, uh, and, I'll watch ugh. it when it comes on Netflix or Disney Plus, okay. whichever one comes yeah. first. Until then, right. uh, until then, I can wait. But regardless, it okay. sounds like they don't <laughs> fix Thanos' motivations. No, okay. it's worse. Yeah. So uh, Samuel S. says, Walt, to put it simply, this episode is brilliant. The insight we gain into Ducat's point of view is great. I can't help but feel slightly sympathetic to the man who has legitimate reason to be upset with the way his reputation of a sadistic killer has formed. This makes the end when Ducat decides to live up to that reputation all the better. We see a man who is given uh, into his image out of anger and isolation. Five out of five. Jamie Crow says, if I walked into a room and saw someone kneeling on the floor in that very familiar movie villain meditation type position, my first thought would not be they've made a complete recovery. However, this is a pretty great episode. Hard to go wrong when these two actors are going head to head. Although Cisco's last few lines at the end were maybe too on the nose. I was also quite surprised by the beam out fake out midway through the episode. Kyle Bear says, a great episode, and it's not just because it teaches you from the pointy bits on the fork are called tines. I'm a little bit torn on Ducat's story from this point on, but as an introduction to this new phase for the character, and as a retrospective look on how he feels about his past, I think the episode is pretty fantastic. It might be slightly too big a leap to make Ducat this level of crazy, but Alemo sells it, and the performances are incredible. It's a wonderful two-person play, not counting the people in Ducat's head, of course. Thank you, patrons. Thank you for supporting the show. Thank you for leaving your thoughts. So... Isaac, if you want to give your rating on a one out of five and then give your final summation of what you think about it. Okay, so I'm going to give the episode a five. Like I said, it's it's in probably still my top five of the whole show just for the heights of the acting and just the incredible performance from Dakot. Like, this is probably my favorite Dakot episode, just like flat out. Like, there are scenes I probably like a bit more like sprinkled throughout the show but when i whenever i think of oh my god this is a standout ducat episode this is the one i always think of um where it kind of gets messy for me is I'll, I'll probably throw this back to you which episode do you think you like better between this and duet uh duet's more satisfying as a standalone story uh this one requires okay. you to have seen pretty much the entire show for it to make any kind of conceptual sense well, do you think that makes it more satisfying, though, since there's been pre-establishment, or do you think that it's worsened by the fact that it's not as self-contained? No, I, th- I think Duet is just a cleaner story, too, because here you're yeah. kind of working with just generic madness here, where Duet is about a very sane person making a very sane decision, and that, I think, is just a tighter, better story. Okay. Yeah, I, I see that. I that's the thing where it's like, I feel like I enjoy watching this episode more because I, I'm way more invested in Dukat obviously than Galdar Hero. Um, but I do think that in terms of execution, I think that it's a, I think duets a much more objectively just better, well-written episode and has less yeah. uh, quirky little flaws here and there. Like there's no weird point where Kira is like maniacally laughing or whatever. What, what's the <laughs> like guy's, just, what's the guy's name? Mort, Morteza, something like that. The Cardassian yeah, and, um, and the, the Cardassian yeah, in duet, I think close. is, he's a, um, 
he he's sympathetic in a way that Ducat is not. So I think that it like it becomes it's more tragic what happens to him in duet than it is to what happens to Ducat in this episode, which I think leaves you feeling a little bit more um, like it's an impactful, meaningful episode. Hmm. Yeah, I get that. Ducat kind of goes crazy. Like it's a great version of going crazy, but he kind of just goes crazy in this episode. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing. I mean. I, I can't judge this episode too harshly on that merit because even though he does go crazy, you can't just say like, well, maybe, you know, he comes out of it or maybe they do interesting stuff with him later on. Like you can, you can still write crazy effectively. I mean, I, most people would point to the Joker, but you know, you, you, you have different ways you can still make that compelling. Yeah. Um, and I think they do it here, you know, like I said, I think this episode gets retroactively a, a bit worse knowing what happens later, but um within the confines of the episode. Um, yeah, I, I, I will definitely say it's more simplistic. Like I do think it's a more simplistic turn for a character to be, you know, maybe perceived as morally gray. And then the bomb drops, he's actually pure evil versus someone who is completely, like you said, rational. And it's just a very tragic, sad situation. Um, so yeah, you know, I, I think both work, but I can see how duets definitely the more, um, compelling narrative. And I think on top of that, it's definitely much better executed. Yeah. Yeah, I'd agree. Um, I'm going to give this one a five as well. Um, okay. It's good. It's a very good episode. It's um, the weaknesses aren't enough to make anything stand out. I don't think like, I think, I think generically going crazy is probably the biggest problem of it. And I wish they had a little bit more of a drive to Cisco um, more like the misery type angle on Cisco, I think would have been an interesting way to go about it. But um, I like all the things they did. I like the chorus of voices in Ducat's head. I like the fact that this is where Ducat ends up at this point. I think it makes sense. I like the reveal of Ducat's inner, inner turmoil. I think his acting is fantastic. I think that final scene is great. I'll probably play that entire clip as the uh, the final <laughs> uh, speech thing here. But that's it. It's a five. It's a very good episode. It, it, uh, it serves the character of Ducat very well i think at this point i've got a question for you do you know that one scene right after the end of ducat's like great speech where uh then cisco hits him on the on the head of the pipe Mm -hmm. and he's like and this is why you're not an evil man now i was always confused by that when i first watched this episode because the episode makes it clear that he is an evil man so is is what cisco's doing there is he just kind of playing that same beat pattern where he's like mockingly agreeing with him basically yeah, he's being sarcastic but avery brooks is not yeah. selling the sarcasm hard enough okay. i don't think yeah it is confusing okay. yeah yeah <laughs> i was i was pretty sure that's what that was what that was what was going on but just to clarify like yeah that was always something that's like hmm that's okay <laughs> no he's, he says it straight enough where you're kind of confused about why he would say that I, i'm pretty sure he's just being sarcastic yeah. and the sarcasm isn't coming across yeah, it's hard. It's hard to be sarcastic hmm. when someone says say uh, say something sarcastic, <laughs> sarcastically. <laughs> so he obviously wasn't feeling it. Um, I'm being very sarcastically straight faced. That's it, guys. Thank you very much for listening to the show. Thank you for supporting us. Thank you for listening. All the social media links are in the. Uh, there's a link to the website down below. We're, we're cleaning up the clutter. You can go to the website and all the links there uh, will direct you to social media. All the other links like the PayPal, the Patreon shirts blah 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 all that nonsense isaac thank you very much for being the end of an era uh the last patron to come on the show with waltz a pretty good episode to go out on i guess 
Yeah, I will. I'll take it. Oh my gosh, can you imagine if my last episode was a Ferengi episode? Oh, <laughs> uh, hey guys, what's up? So uh, we might have a fresh perspective. I think me and Clay, <laughs> me and Clay, are done with things to say about the Ferengi episodes. I think so. I don't really? know. I don't know what like the the upcoming seven that are left are going to be like, but we'll see. Well, I didn't. I'll admit, I didn't actually listen to your magnificent Ferengi one as of yet. Um, but I do remember that one being my favorite in the show. Did you guys like that episode? Yeah, it's a, we gave it a three. We both gave it a three. It was fine. Uh, mm, that's a shame. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of people seem to really like it. I just, I'm not, I'm not, I don't care about it. Like there's, I, I just, there's no reason that it needs to exist, I guess would be my point. I just remember the humor landing the most out of all of them in that episode, as well as maybe the, uh, the dynamics with the Ferengi being the most fleshed out and, fun to watch i suppose i mean i forget most of that episode but i do remember liking it and being the most entertained by it yeah it's, all it, of them. It's, it's fine there's nothing it, it's as okay. good as a ferengi episode can get i guess would be the way to look at it mm-hmm. um let's see here so that's it otherwise thank you very much guys for listening isaac thank you for coming on and uh i guess we'll be back in a couple days with what the hell is the episode after this i should know it but I don't. I'm going to sacrifice of angels part two. <laughs> That's the, the rebuild. Come on, Is give it, me, give me. Oh, it's who mourns for mourn. That's right. Oh. Uh, who mourns oh, for mourn? Oh, question mark. So we'll be back in a couple of days with that. Clay will be back, and uh, everything will be proceeding as usual for the rest of this season and the next. So, Isaac, thanks again. Yeah. Thanks. Awesome being here. I uh, I appreciate my time on, and I hope Clay has uh, is doing well. And yeah. I got nothing. <laughs> you're you're going to be you're going to be annoyed when Clay comes back and says this is a one out of five, but we'll uh, oh, we'll see what he says. And, and, and I can't come back and be like, no, you're wrong. No, there's <laughs> and no. just rant at him on a podcast. <laughs> oh, it's such a shame. You could you could uh, you could make your own podcast episode and put it up there and make uh, Clay listen to it, but that's about it, guys. Yeah, I was just so bored by the cot this whole time. Like he just didn't <laughs> seem very compelling. Like I don't know. It's like the same thing with like the Bajoran prophets. Just nah. <laughs> without uh, without knowing anything, I think Clay will like this one. I told him he had to watch. Yeah. It because yeah, it's important so too. we'll say he's he seems to do you think clay likes ducat or wayun more i know you're a big wayun fan so do you think he is more on team ducat in terms of the villains e- yes i would think so yeah if he had to pick one he would choose too. ducat yeah and would act well you would pick wayun over ducat right uh, i i think wayun only exists in contrast to Dukat. Like a lot of what a lot of what Weiyun is is a more logistical version of Dukat. He he's more of like the the bureaucrat who knows what he needs to do and I think that that works more effectively when he's paired with someone like Dukat. Um but otherwise mm. it's just the performance. Like if you if you had to say which of these is the better performance I'd have a hard time telling you which one is better. Cuz they're both very good between Dukat and Weiyun. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I man, it's, it's hard for me too because I feel like with the context of where Dukat ends up, I would say that Duke, uh, Wei Yun's the more consistently great character. Um, but I think Dukat has more standout highlight moments in this. Like, for example, I don't think we would if we had a similar episode to this one where it was like a stage play of just like really exploring Wei Yun's character by himself. It would not be nearly as effective as Dukat. Like I think Dukat can hold his own better than Wayun. But like you said, when you pair up Wayun with somebody that can play off him really well, like Dukat or a founder, then yeah, it's it's really good. Yep. So, yeah. They're right, both. Guys. I mean, yeah. 
<laughs> oh, sorry, yeah, but we've we've got no, a, you're good. we've got a couple episodes left in season six, and then we've got season seven. Then we will have the final determination about where they stand in the pantheon of uh, villainy. Otherwise, guys, thank you very much for listening. We'll see you next time. <laughs>